Hello from Austin. Welcome to episode 145 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Tuesday afternoon. It's November 26, 2019. It is almost Thanksgiving. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek, and if you are traveling, as I am with the wee ones, good luck. When do you leave? Uh, We leave tomorrow, Wednesday. We are flying, hopefully, uh, to Los Angeles, to LAX. (laughs) So you've chosen one of the few routes that's relatively unlikely to be deeply disrupted. You're not not going right into the teeth of the bomb cyclone, are you? I I don't believe the bomb cyclone is anywhere near Los Angeles, although LA has its own natural disasters aplenty. But, um, you know, you never, cascading travel delays, you never know. Are you an early morning flight? Um, It's noon. Yeah, so some of our listeners, we realize you're going to be listening to this. Maybe you got the... uh, Maybe in transit. In transit. um, I hope you're not stuck somewhere. I hope it's not turning into planes, trains, and automobiles for you. Uh, But we're here to keep you company for at least an hour. Um, What have we got today? We've got, well, we've got the long-awaited military commission uh, catch-up episode. We still won't do it justice. No, we won't. But, well, so we'll we'll cover some of it. Um, We'll have a note on... The change to National Cupcake Day, also known as the change to the situation with the uh, soon-to-sunset, or they were soon-to-sunset, FISA authorities. Beware the eyes of March. That's our new catchphrase, although I really prefer National Cupcake Day. And by the way, can I just, while, while we're doing quotes, can I just say I, I, I have to confess error, as often happens on the show. I, I, I got a new last week for Don't Act Surprised because I wrote them. I said, don't ask because I wrote it. And then on, on reflection, as someone pointed out on Twitter, no, it is them. Because even though he was referring, even though Jefferson was referring to the Declaration of Independence, he was referring the to words. His, his words. His words. Plural. Those are the words he so, wrote. So Bobby, 475, Steve, zero. Oh, excellent. 10 points to Gryffindor. Ep- episode title. <laughs> Bobby, 475, Steve, no, zero. No, 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 no. That would, that would definitely not be accurate. Um, You're right. Bobby, 8,475, <laughs> Steve, Now you're zero. talking. Now you're starting to persuade me. Um, you're, you're making Bobby music. Well, after we talk about National Cupcake Day, we will pivot over to the Esper Spencer Gallagher uh, mess. Oh my God! I, <laughs> we've got our we've got our first OMG. Only Trump. Of Steve. Um, although, although actually, he he out OMG'd himself yesterday. Did you see this thing? So, um, Congress <laughs> passed, and President Trump yesterday signed into law the uh, Women's Suffrage Centennial Coin Act. Um, where basically uh, to mark the ratif- to mark the hundredth anniversary of the ratification of the Nineteenth Amendment, which says the right to vote shall not be denied on the basis of sex, okay. which is next year is the hundredth anniversary. Mm-hmm. Um, Congress has commissioned a centennial coin to okay. be minted by you know the U.S. Mint. No doubt the Franklin Mint will be selling it on a page in a newspaper near you soon. And as these things go, this requires legislation, and the president signed it and had a big ceremony. And in his remarks on signing legislation, he said, "I just don't understand why we haven't done this sooner." You know, it must be because you know. I'm just. It's a. It's a. It's a sign of. It's a sign of how great I am. That's, that we finally. That we're finally doing this now. The coin. Yes. To which my response is, um, <laughs> Mr. President, the centennial of the Nineteenth Amendment is next year. You don't know how. You don't understand why this didn't happen sooner because the centennial wasn't any sooner. Clearly, Washington is broken, but he can fix it. Um, I, I mean. That's he does, really funny. He doesn't know what the word centennial means. I think you're assuming he was making a judgment about that as opposed to just sort of reflexively <sighs> taking the credit. Um, we, we will take note of a development in Syria with CENTCOM teaming back up with SDF to conduct operations again. We'll have a little note on that. And then we will pivot over to Mazars and, and other subpoena-related stuff, McGann. We've got Trumplandia subpoena updates. Uh, and I think when we're on that, we'll, we'll have a little note for John Bolton as well. Um, 
And in the end, at Frivaldi time, we will, of course, touch base with The Mandalorian, Episode 3. No spoilers between now and then. Of course, we'll be careful. Um, Steve, military commissions, There's as you've been flagging for several for weeks, episodes, weeks. there's been a ton going on. Um, where's the go button? Here, let me press it. Go. <laughs> wow, put me on the spot, why don't you? Okay, so um, it's hard to keep track. And I'm not even going to do it justice in the next five, ten minutes. But I think it would be helpful just to sort of flag where we are in the military commissions, what's going on, and what some of the next headlines are going to be. Um, among other things, right right after next week um, is actually, believe it or not, Bobby, pre-trial proceedings in Al-Nashiri. Whoa. I know. He's back. All right. So where are we there? Um, so let me just start. I mean, let, let, me put, let me step back a second, right? So the military commissions, although they've been in some shape in progress for 17 years, um, to date, they've produced eight convictions, right? Um, five of those convictions have been reversed or thrown out or vacated in some appellate capacity, whether by the convening authority or the Court of Military Commission Review or the D.C. Circuit. Um, there are three sort of that are um, partly intact, right? There's Al Balul, who's serving a life sentence for his conspiracy conviction, which the D.C. Circuit upheld on Bonk in 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, there's Salim Hamdan, who served and completed his sentence for material support mm-hmm. um, and was released back to Yemen, it feels like years ago, eons ago. It was years ago. Um, and then there's Majid Khan, um, who there's some maneuvering and wrangling going on right now over his conviction and whether there's some ability for him to challenge that now. But those are sort of the three... You know, settled, non-vulnerable, ongoing, forward-looking convictions, everything's okay. there. Um, there are, depending on how you count, either three or four pending cases in the military commissions. There are three that are actually in active proceedings. There's a fourth where there's at least been an initial discussion of charges, although it's not clear how much progress we've made. The three that are ongoing are, of course, Al Nashiri, mm-hmm. um, who is the alleged uh, USS Cole mastermind, right, the, the October 2000 bombing of the USS Cole that resulted in the deaths of, I think, 17 American right. sailors, sailors. Yeah. Um, and injuries, obviously, to many more. Yep. Um, Nashiri's case has been beset, as we have, and besotted, um, as we have described at rather nauseating length on this podcast by a whole array of procedural, ethical, and other judicial bias-y issues. So this is the one where the, this is the revolving dip. door into immigration judgeships uh, became so well-trodden a path that it derailed years of pretrial litigation that were already going on forever, and now we get to start over on some of it. Yep. Um, and we're going to start over starting next week. Um, now, just to, just to put in the context, Nashiri is being charged entirely, right, for his responsibility for the coal attack there is, as we've discussed before, this looming jurisdictional question about whether the military commissions can even try an offense that was committed in October of 2000, yeah. 11 months before the 9-11 attacks. Were we in a state of armed conflict with al-Qaeda at that point? So far, the commission has said yes, and the civilian courts have stayed out of it. Right, and that's a huge question. So the, there, there, there have been innumerable court decisions that accept that, at least from 9-11 onward, we have a state of armed conflict uh, for preceding uh, activities such as the coal attack that is, that remains an open question at the uh, DC Circuit level and, and above, obviously. Yep. Okay. Um, so with Nashiri, the there are sort of two different tricky things that are going to have to happen now. One is Judge 
Cohen, I no Cohen's the nine eleven case. The, the see, this is why it's so hard to keep up. I can't remember which judge it is. But um, the new judge in the Shiri is going to have to fa- start by figuring out how far back to wind the clock. Right, the DC Circuit decision from earlier this year says you have to go back three and a half years to like November or September or something to, to avoid the taint of the of Judge Spath's right, ju- right ju- uh, uh, judicial bias um, or apparent judicial right, bias. Right, right, right. The, the the claim that because he was looking for this DOJ right. immigration apparent, judge apparent or not. DOJ, DHS, uh, DOJ, DOJ, yeah, EOR, D- right, right, Office of Immigration Review, uh, exactly, yes, yeah, yeah. E, e, I was just, I, I was looking at the E, e. Um, okay. although I, if, if ever there's a government agency with an unfortunate acronym, EOR okay. might be it. Okay, um, okay, so um, one big issue is sort of you know trying to figure out like so where do we start over and what deference, if any, do I give to the prior adjudications and how do we relitigate the same questions that it took three and a half years to litigate in this past case, and that the complication there is. Nashiri, like the 9-11 case, which we'll get to in a second, is complicated by the continuing sort of um, debate over both what happened to him in CIA custody, where, you know, there's the Senate uh, torture, the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, an executive summary of the torture report suggests Nashiri was tortured, um, and whether and to what extent that should bear on, for example, anything that happens in his trial. So is the government... Proposing to put forward any testimony derived. It's not about so. So again, as in the 9/11 case, this is not about suppressing okay. evidence that the government wants to include in its case in chief. The government has, for the most part, forsworn those things. Yeah. This is about whether and to what extent the defendants are going to be allowed, right, to put on evidence about what happened to them, whether as mitigation, right, or as sort of. Um, tainting, right, other sort of avenues of government evidentiary sort of value. I mean the. There's is a the idea that there's a fruit of the poison tree sort of notion? It's a whole. There's there's a lot of different ideas, right? Because yeah. there are a lot of different motions covering a lot of different topics. My point is just that when the jury gets going, right? It's not just sort of being like, okay, we have to rewind the clock. It's right. also there are some some tr- big issues. Some big issues yeah. when you're. Can, I the just clock. want to say a little placeholder on that because yeah. I think it's a really interesting topic. When Jose Padilla was in military custody, held inside the United States. Yeah. Later on, he gets shifted into civilian prosecution, and he made a, in that context, the standard motion, if you if you want to build that sort of argument, that even though the government's not using statements derived involuntarily from me, I nonetheless, uh, I, think I, can, I think I can make something of this. It was a motion to dismiss the indictment on grounds of alleged outrageous government conduct, and that was rejected in that instance. Uh, I assume Nishiri is going to try to make a similar argument here. But that's separate and apart from trying to argue that other items of evidence that the government might use, trying to claim that maybe those were obtained fruit of the poisonous tree style, which raises the question, is that doctrine even applicable here? Well, so, I mean, this, is so, it and factually it, relevant? So in the 9-11 case, which we'll get to in a second, right, there's this lingering question about the clean team statements, right, for example, which mm-hmm. will, which will, which will, so I, I, don't right, mean, okay, got it. I don't mean to prejudge all this. My point is just to say there's a lot of work to be done. Um, so that's Nishiri, restarted next week. Whew. Um, and, and, and partly because like, you know, we're basically rewriting history at this point. Um, the, before getting on, the second of the three pending cases, um, is, uh, um, uh, Hadi al-Iraqi, um, right. And this is, I think the, just on the sort of who the defendant is, right. The smallest of the fish, right. The, the least, uh, apparently significant in the Al-Qaeda hierarchy, right. if you will, based on the allegations. Um, and the complication that has arisen in this case is, once again, a concern about apparent judicial bias on the part of the military judge assigned to al-Iraqi's case. Um, this had led uh, um, Hadi, Al-Hadi, uh, Hadi's lawyers um, to first seek um, 
uh, relief in the Court of Military Commission review, um, that is still pending. What uh, was my, the underlying? Uh, sorry, nature? that um, um, my understanding is that the military judge in his case um, had spent some time in working on one of the prosecution teams. Right, right, right. right? Not in that case. Yeah. But so in, this is not analogous to hey, you're trying to get a job. This your is, next job you're hoping right. to get from one of the parties. This is more like something you did in the past. Right, you should recuse because you of your past against. case work. Right. Um, I, I don't. I don't want to sort of weigh in on the merits of that here. All I want to say is that um, it's serious enough, right, that the D.C. Circuit a couple of weeks ago um, issued a stay of the tri- the pretrial proceedings, right. not pending what anything before the D.C. Circuit, but pending the CMCR's right. disposition right. of the judicial right, bias. They don't want to go any further down the on the sherry pathway of having to undo. Pre-trial right now, proceedings. now we're learning. Right, let's freeze things until we sort out the bias thing. Right, um, which also says to me that the D.C. Circuit might preserve the stay for long enough, assuming the CMCR rules against the defendant. Right, for long enough to at least give him a shot to ask the D.C. Circuit to weigh in. As yeah. well, so that one's going to be delayed as well. And then we have uh, the nine eleven case. Um, so the nine eleven case is, of course, the the big the big Kahuna um, in this conversation, right? The five uh, uh, so called nine eleven masterminds, um, and that too is at the moment in a bit of a not judicial bias kerfuffle, but um, a convening authority bias kerfuffle um, in two directions, right? So one. Um, there is, and this is where the it's Judge Cohen. Um, so one, there's concern about the convening authority um, and whether the convening authority actually has to be recused from at least one or two of the defendant's cases because of his prior involvement um, in the military commissions on the prosecutorial side. Um, you know, I, again, I, I, it would take a lot to sort of fully unpack these arguments. I just want to sort of give us a brief on where yeah, we are. Yeah, yeah. Um, that issue has led Judge Cohen, after a hearing either last week or two weeks ago, to actually order the convening authority to show up and testify at a hearing, um, right, on the ground that, like, the concerns are serious enough to warrant at least further examination. So very similar to the Al-Iraqi but but here the convening authority, not the judge, right? right. So here right, the right. sort of the the right the convening authority who basically um, prefers the charges, right? Reviews the findings and sentence mm-hmm. before the appeal can be you know taken, right? Um, and right in the nine eleven case, there is also um, the ongoing question. I, I don't believe, and and if I'm wrong on this, I I hope folks will correct me. I don't believe Judge Cohen has yet revisited. Um, the clean team statements ruling by Judge Polk. So we had talked about how a major ruling right before Judge Polk stepped off the case was that the the so-called clean team statements, basically when after these guys had been tortured, when the government sends in FBI agents and does a, a totally right. clean Right. We're not briefed on what happened before. We're just here to read your rights and start doing a right. standard law enforcement interrogation. And Judge Polk said even those statements should be suppressed, right, in light right. of that the— Right, that was a huge ruling. Right. Um, that is, there's a motion for reconsideration of that ruling. I believe that is still pending before the trial judge in the 9-11 case. Um, and let me just say, Bobby, there are like dozens of other major motions um, in the 9-11 case that are sitting on Judge Cohen's desk right now, all of which could— not like terminate the proceeding, but have a significant impact on well, the shape of the trial, the conduct of the trial. What these are all fully briefed, fully argued. I, so I again, it's, it's, it, this is my fault for not like having them all sort of committed to memory. But at least some, right? Some of them are, um, and I think some of them are scheduled for upcoming sessions, right? And so you know, I say this all because like there's going to be a lot more military commission news before there's less, right? And is it's it, all still in the pretrial posture. Is it fair to say that the pace between when these 
motions are getting argued and briefed, briefed and then argued. Yeah. And the results, is it does it strike you as manifestly clear that it is slower than would be the case yes. in a run of the mill uh, district court? Yes, but there and there there are but there are reasons for that that I think are to some degree structural. Right? Um, these are not standing courts. Um, the hearings are, you know, there's only, I think, what, two courtrooms at Guantanamo. So, you know, they're not, they're, the, the, the hearings are not every week, right? The judges are not, the judges have other duties. They're not there full time. Um, and so I think, you know, some of this delay is just, is not. It's endemic to the structure. It's not any, it's no malice on anyone's oh, part. Oh, I don't think anybody's, no, I definitely don't think it's malicious. I'm just wondering, yeah. is this another indicator of the, the problems that you inherently get when you go with this, oh. uh, this specialized system? And it seems like this is yet another cost, it's just the, the sheer glacial slowness of resolving what are important and complicated, but nonetheless, in, in capital cases, there's always really yep. important and complicated yep. pretrial rulings to be resolved. Well, so this is the last thing I want to say about, about so in the Shuri and the 9-11 case, not in, uh, in Hadi al-Iraqi, um, right, those are capital cases. And that puts just so much more pressure on every little jot and tittle, right, on every little piece of the proceeding where, you know, the because it just it's a fact of, of life that the Supreme Court holds capital cases to a higher standard than it holds non-capital cases. And we haven't seen that in the military commission context yet, but you know, it's not hard to imagine, certainly the DC Circuit, right, would be wary of um, procedural flaws on the capital side that it might abide in the non-capital setting. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's, so that was three. I said there's one more sort of in a weird state, which is this is the Indonesian case, right? This is right. Um, the charges against Hambali, and maybe one or two other detainees. I mean, it's it's um, where it's not really clear what's going on. Although there was that weird emergency habeas thingy to Judge Bates that no one right. really we don't knows. know what it was about, right? Right. The yeah. the best guess is that maybe it was something about the Indonesian case, but no one really knows why. Yeah. So I, I don't mean to sort of take a strong position on on any of these particular issues because I'm sure one that I've screwed up some of them, and two that I've missed a bunch. My point is just that there is a lot of stuff going on in the military commissions. And a lot of it's actually, you know, in a different time and place would be really important to the field of national security law, but that it's, there's just so much volume these days that it's hard to keep up. Is it fair to say that many of these pending issues are going to ultimately have to go certainly to the CMCR, probably a subset of those certainly onto the DC circuit, and that not only do we have this ongoing protracted process of gradually grinding out these issues and then having to revisit them in Nishiri, Maybe otherwise, that um, we've got years more of appeals following all this. Yep. I think that's right. And so, you know, this is gonna. I guess the short version. Never mind is, the trials. Right. Um, this is gonna take. This is. This, we're not. We're not. We're not at the end of the beginning. We're not at the beginning of the end. But we are just way, way stuck in the middle. Yeah. All right. Yay. Yay. How, how was that? That was good. That was more yeah, than actually, five Actually, that minutes. was very efficient. Yeah. Well, it was. Yeah. All right. Well, um, efficiency is my middle name. <laughs> is it? No. It's Isaiah. <laughs> um, I think you should look into changing spell with an I. Efficiency. Yeah. <laughs> oh boy. All right. So um, I've been touting quite a bit National Cupcake Day Indeed. as a shorthand for the day, December fifteenth, when the Lone Wolf, the Roving Wiretap, the Call Detail Records, and the regular Section two fifteen. Uh, provisions all under the FISA framework uh, would sunset if Congress takes no further action. And the other day, Congress took an action, and it's now law, but it was a continuing resolution that contained a punt 
provision. And the deadline for all of those has been pushed off to the Ides of March, March 15th. So there you go. We, we are going to get to revisit this issue in the spring. What is going on here? Uh, obviously, they, they concluded that with impeachment and other things, they just weren't going to get to it. And at least the stars weren't aligned for whatever deal they're ultimately going to strike. They'll, they'll kick it down the road. We may see more of this. Who knows? But for now, no more National Cupcake Day. Or rather, there will be National Cupcake Day as scheduled, but it won't matter for surveillance law. And I suppose that's good. Um, Steve, on a different topic, um, we already talked about the president's decision to issue pardons and a commutation of sentence uh, and a restoration of rank uh, in a series of cases involving UCMJ uh, convictions and prosecutions. <sighs> one of which involved uh, a Navy SEAL, Gallagher. Um, and there was a follow-on question where the the commander of the SEALs was uh, put in place a process that might result of, of in booting Gallagher out, taking his trident, as they say, booting him out of the SEALs. Um, and in the event, the president got engaged, tweeted that this was not going to happen on his watch, and in the end, we see the resignation slash removal well, of the, the Secretary the, the, of the, the Navy. The shrug emoji of the Secretary of the Navy. So what is the relevancy? What's what's the kernel of, of legal Law. interest here? So so obviously it's 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 a mess in many right. other ways. Leaving aside the sanctioning of war crimes. Um, right. The legal issue here is I, I wanna let me make sure I find the tweet because I want to make sure I get this right. So right. Oh, let me while you're doing that, um, yes. let me note. Now Gallagher was acquitted. He, he, when in his court martial, he was acquitted of an unlawful killing, uh, or two unlawful killings. Uh, what he was convicted for was, was posing, posing with for a corpse. photograph with the corpse. Which, by the way, is, you know. Yeah, but I, I think it's only fair to say, like, that I think a lot of people think that he was convicted for killing uh, unlawfully. That's not what he was convicted for. And that's a big distinction. Okay. I Okay. Isn't it? I didn't. I'm not saying it's not important what he did do. I'm just saying that it is important that people not think we're They're talking about both a person. war crimes. Posing with the corpse is a war crime. Are you saying? Are you arguing that it's equally morally reprehensible as an unlawful killing? No, but okay, I, that's no, all I'm but saying. I do think that pardoning people who are convicted war criminals sends I, a terrible message about I good did, order and discipline. I didn't argue otherwise. Okay. I'm just trying to clarify something. I think a lot of people are confused about. So on on when was this? Um, what day is it? I'm I'm so confused. It's uh, a day. Sunday afternoon. Um, right while I was not paying attention to anything. Um, so Sunday afternoon, uh, President Trump tweeted, I was not pleased with the way that Navy SEAL Eddie Gallagher's trial was handled by the Navy. He was treated very badly, but despite this, was completely exonerated on all major charges. Because um, there are minor war crimes. Um, I then restored Eddie's rank. Likewise, large cost overruns from past administrations, contracting procedures were not addressed to my satisfaction. That's such BS. Therefore, Secretary of the Navy Richard Spencer's services have been terminated by Secretary of Defense Mark Esper. So let's start with the have been terminated language. Um, guess who doesn't have the authority to remove the Secretary of the Navy? Would it be the Secretary of Defense? Ding, ding, ding. Bobby, you're a winner on the show. How can we violate the appointments clause today? Okay, so uh, and also there's the letter from the Secretary of the Navy, which sort of tells a different story. Um, so Spencer says, right, uh, he, what, he was asked for his, I, I don't have the letter in front of me, basically Spencer's oh. like, you know, um, this has nothing to do with the, with, with the cost overrun. No, he's like, look, we have a different conception of, of, of what the warrior ethos is, et cetera, order and discipline, et cetera. It's, you know, it's a, it's a strongly, re relatively strongly worded, uh, statement that puts him in a good light, relatively speaking. Yeah. Um, 
I, you know, I don't. I, it's hard given. I mean, there's there's sort of conflicting backstories. Right. Well, that's the thing I want to, to surface here is that there's a story. I think I think uh, Secretary of Defense Esper is saying, if I've got the sequence right, that what his action reflected was Secretary of the Navy Spencer going around him directly to the president to pitch an outcome that would sort of make this problem go away by allowing Gallagher to retire. Um, and to resign, but the process, the process that was in progress wouldn't be terminated. And so the idea, if that's what happened, the idea was, look, it's bad to terminate this process. You can't truncate the process. That's bad for order and discipline. Let it continue. But, but the fix will be in. He's, he's going to retire and he'll get what he wants, but he'll be out and everybody can be happy. And then this becomes a process foul from the secretary of defense's perspective because he was circumvented in that chain. Um, where, where's the, Where's the larger lesson here in this whole mess uh, about the rule of law as a way to define right. how American warfighters fight? So Esper, I mean, I tweeted this yesterday. So at his confirmation hearing to be Secretary of Defense, um, Esper was specifically asked by, I believe it was Senator Peters. Um, I just want to make sure I don't get that wrong. Um, so Esper was asked by Senator Peters, um, yeah, Senator Gary Peters, um, whether he would be willing to resign should he be asked to support an issue or policy that runs counter to his values. And he said, absolutely. So apparently um, this did not, you know, what Trump is doing does not run counter to his policy or his values. Um, or he decided he didn't want to resign over that after all. Okay, well, fair. Um, Spencer's letter, regardless of who played what role in this process, there's one line in Spencer's letter that I think is quite telling, which is where Spencer talks about good order and discipline. Um, and good order and discipline, you know, if in in the military, that's not just a phrase. Like that is a ethos that you know um, we have the uniform code of military justice. We have the entire military justice system for the purpose of preserving good order and discipline. Because you know when the you know when the SHI, you know what hits the fan, it's good order and discipline that allows the military to be an effective fighting force. I think we should all be worried about measures by any commander, and the president in this context is a commander, if not a statutory commander, um, that could weaken good order and discipline. And Spencer's letter suggests, right, that the president's actions in these cases will directly and negatively impact good order and discipline. I haven't heard anyone argue that he's wrong, right? Like, I, I have not seen the affirmative case that what the president did is good, for good order and discipline from any circles. All I've seen is that the president had the legal authority to do it. And that's true, but just to go back to a, a great episode title from last week, right? Things can be both lawful and awful. Does the letter single out one or the other between the following two, or is it both? The the acquittal, the, the pardons yeah. and the commutation, or is it about the intervention to stop the seal process to potentially take I think a it was, So I think the letter itself is specifically addressed to the latter, yeah. right? Um, but I think the concern that has been expressed by other, both current and former military officers, right, extends to the former as well. Right. Well, it makes and, sense. So I think all, it's just, it is just another episode of norms versus rules, right, where the president has the unquestioned legal authority to do everything that he did. Write that down. Um, Another episode of norms versus rules. <laughs> I'm norm. <laughs> I'm rules. Um, right, and and it's just another another example of you know norms that we used to think were actually to some degree sacrosanct. Um, and what happens when they get overridden, right? And in this case, you know, Spencer, for reasons that are not entirely clear on the public record, becomes the casualty. Um, but the longer term concern is how do we restore the notion that like this is not conduct that we should sanction. So um, do you think we've heard the last of this particular no. story? No. 
Are, think, are there any further procedural steps or other legal developments that might? I don't arise? believe so. But I've heard that the president intends to take all three of the of the guys he has granted relief to and use them as campaign props. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what to say in response to that. Do you mean like he's going to have them be guests at the next State of the Union, or like rallies where it's like you know? But they're I'm, all- I'm protecting our warfighters. Are they currently serving still? Isn't the whole point of Gallagher, at least, he's currently still serving and yeah. he's not retiring? So? Oh, oh, you mean so he'd be violating the Hatch Act and the regulations appertaining there too by, by, by participating in political I'm, rallies? I'm, I'm, look, I'm no expert on any of this stuff, as we've established through 145 episodes, and, but certainly not this. But I'm pretty sure you, you can't just partake in a campaign event. Of course not. But these are the same <laughs> rules that Kellyanne Conway scoffs at, right? These are, these are the exact same rules. That she's, she's not my authority on this. <laughs> No, no. I, I, my I point know. is not that the rules aren't what she's what we say yeah, they are. Yeah. My point is that these are rules that used to be honored, you know, aggressively. I guess I think I, I'll believe them showing up at a true campaign event when I see it. Surely not. And I think we agree. Surely not is the right answer. Um, we'll see if that sticks. And that's what I say. I mean, like, there's a lot of talk out there about sort of civil military relations, right? And how the commander in chief clause which is where the president derives the authority to do all of this, is a critical part of preserving civil-military relations because it ensures civilian superintendents of the military. And I just want to say, like, we should be able to chew gum, right, and, 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 and walk at the same time, right? That is to say, like, you know, one can believe in the importance of civilian control of the military while also believing that civilians with either bad intent or just unca- lack of due care... Or bone spurs. Or bone spurs... Um, can actually, you know, mess up the military in ways that are antithetical to the military's effectiveness. I, far from being a, a conflict, I would say these these are integral. So the whole point of having civilian command of the military is to separate the military power uh, from sources of civilian political power and to keep these in separate spheres. Demo- and to keep if, them democratically if accountable. If the military is brought in any institutional representative sense into the domestic political process, well, you've collapsed that distinction. It can collapse in either direction. Uh, worst of all, when it's when it's simultaneous in a pincer movement. Um, let's hope we don't get there. And I don't. I don't. I certainly don't think we're there. But I, I certainly think this president would would certainly like to make use of and has tried to make use of the military as a prop. Uh, he's done it many times. Um, Speaking of our military doing the things it's supposed to be doing, so ah. CENTCOM is, of course, still pursuing the armed conflict with the Islamic State and its remnants in uh, Syria. Wait, what? I know it. I know it. Just because I thought we withdrew. I thought we withdrew. I, yeah. I thought. Yeah. I thought ISIS was one hundred percent defeated. Yeah, right. One hundred percent defeated. We're withdrawing. I'm bringing the troops home. Maybe he just doesn't understand what the number one. Maybe he just doesn't understand what the number one hundred means. I don't think because like means what centen- you think it means. centennial, hundred percent. Oh, like, there's you a know. Cent- there's a cent problem a hundred problem that maybe could be they, it maybe they're all pennies well here's the thing um the other day it was reported uh i think this was an eric schmidt article in the new york times that there was a relatively substantial uh operation with u.s forces in partnered operation with our sdf allies who you know how galling for them it must be to be sold down the river uh in the northern area along the turkish border but then they still do need us everywhere else and are still fighting with us. And CENTCOM, for its part, of course, is mortified by the whole thing and is eager to remain in the field, keeping the pressure on Islamic State fighters who are certainly still out there and more capable of being out there now thanks to that uh, the northern Syria sellout situation. The reason I emphasize all this is the article by Eric Schmidt emphasizes both that um, some Islamic State fighters were killed in the operation and also it mentions that there were at least some captives taken. Well, we don't take them. We don't hold them. Who's doing that? 
SDF. And as we've talked about on the show many times, we are using them, uh, relying on them as a proxy detention capability. And we saw with the sellout of the SDF um, a, a grave threat to the stability, that already unstable situation with those detention operations, uh, gravely threatened in that case. We may or may not be past the hump on that one. It may have resolved with, rel- I don't know how many, in, I'm in no position to know how many Islamic State fighters and supporters may have been sprung loose from that. Don't know if we'll ever know. I do know that we took into custody uh, two Formerly British guys known as the Beatles, who, by the way, are still over there and the days are flying off the calendar. We are awaiting that UK Supreme Court ruling that will pave the way perhaps towards bringing them to the United States for prosecution once the Brits are more free to share information with us that we could use at trial. But maybe it won't. But keep watching that space because at a certain point, the litigation is going to kick in and we'll have a habeas case a la Dovey Mattis, but with the wrinkle that these are not U.S. citizens. Um, anyways. Now we're adding to the detainee pipeline, and presumably this isn't the only you know time this month that the SDF forces have taken some Islamic State fighters. Every time it happens, you have to ask, if we won't preserve the stability of the SDF, then why do we think their detention operations will be stable? And maybe the answer is, well, because the Russians in the, in the Assad regime will take that over. Uh, maybe. <laughs> uh, I don't know. <laughs> that has its own issues. All right, that's enough on that one. Steve, let's turn back to Trumplandia and talk about... Uh, Stuff. Subpoena litigation. Subpoena land. Multiplicitous subpoena litigation. We got it. We got a McGahn ruling. We got a McGahn ruling. So does that mean tomorrow he's testifying? No. No, but but it does mean that at least one judge thinks he should. So uh, Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson late yesterday afternoon um, issued a ruling in the lawsuit about uh, McGahn's challenge to whether he can be compelled to comply with a congressional subpoena. McGahn had invoked the, quote, absolute immunity, absolute testimonial immunity, unquote, of uh, former senior presidential advisors, the very immunity that the only previous judicial ruling on point, Judge Bates's ruling in House Judiciary Committee versus Myers, had rejected. Um, and Judge Jackson joins Judge Bates in saying, that's not a thing. So we have one case that's confronted this scenario with the White House counsel being asked to testify on matters relating to stuff they didn't say as White House counsel, where a similar claim was made, and the answer was, nope, no, no testimonial privilege immunity. Well, for wait, that. wait, hold on a second. Can I, so no immunity. No immunity. So the privilege, so this is- There's still a, stuff that is There is still absolutely going to be stuff that is protected be attorney-client by privilege. executive privilege and attorney-client privilege, but that's a sort of more specific sort of point-by-point Right. Objection, I can't answer that question versus such and such privilege. You can't even make me show up and testify as to like what my name is. Right. So the point is there's any number of things that aren't within the scope, wouldn't fall within the scope of those two privileges. Although it might not stop them again from invoking them and forcing them to be litigated. Well, there's a separate question of like the good faithness of, of, of when they're invoked. But right, this is like saying I don't have to be – you can't even depose me. You can't ask me things that are clearly not even executive privilege or attorney-client privilege because of my job status. The courts have now twice ruled in this, both times saying that's not a thing. There's no such immunity. You can't fire me. I quit. You can't quit. You're fired. Now, but in in neither case are these Supreme Court rulings or even D.C. Circuit rulings. We now have two district court rulings, and that's something. But we don't know what's going to happen. With with Myers— McGann has already appealed. So Myers, there was an appeal pending, and then— there was a transition in administrations while the appeal was pending, and then there was like a deal made, and yeah. it all went away. Okay. Um, the 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 interesting. So yes, this will go to the DC Circuit, and it'll go up pretty quickly. What's interesting is John Bolton's lawyer, who said something this morning to the effect of the ruling doesn't apply to my client because the ruling's analysis wouldn't encompass the National Security Advisor. 
And I just have to say, like, the White House counsel is, you know, about as close. I mean, I, I understand the National Security Advisor is an important position, but like from an org chart perspective, I don't know why the National Security Advisor would have any special claim, not Bobby to maybe privilege, but any immunity claim that the White House counsel or in the Myers case, the White House chief of staff, Josh Bolton, right, wouldn't have. Like, I don't see why White House counsel, White House chief of staff, Yes, you but you can be you can be compelled to testify. Oh, national security advisor, you're different. I, so I think there's room for a little bit. I don't think it's a persuasive argument, but I certainly see room for a uh, an argument to be made that the national security advisory function perhaps is more sensitive and different from those. I don't think it's crazy to suggest it. I just don't think it's ultimately persuasive. I think that if you lose, if the right answer ultimately is that there's not an out and out immunity from testifying. Period, which is the equivalent of saying. Every single word and utterance that you offer or is offered to you, as far as you're concerned as a witness, is privileged. If you don't think that's the case for White House counsel or chief of staff, it's implausible to extend that to the National Security Advisor. But I don't think it's I don't think it's crazy to offer the distinction. Uh, well, uh, that too will have to be litigated. Without you mentioned John Bolton, I can't help but notice you know he's returned to Twitter uh, and in sort of an awkward sort of uh, tweeting very loud way. way. No, that's great. Like, hey, is there any other way on Twitter? Um, all too often, no. So, but this is just like an hour or so ago. I'm quoting from John Bolton's Twitter account. Am John Bolton? Amb for for ambassador. Amb John Bolton. Um, It probably goes without saying (laughs) that our country's commitment to our national security priorities is under attack from within. America is distracted. Our enemies are not. We need to make U.S. national security a priority. Now, what's going on here is he has a campaign to drum up money for a PAC he's launched. And he says on the PAC's materials he's going to support candidates that have a strong sort of U.S. national security posture. But what do you think he is implying, or is it meant to be strategically ambiguous, when he says that our nation's commi- our country's commitment to our national security priorities is under attack from within? Is he, t- is he criticizing the president? Is he criticizing those who support the president on all things? Isn't that perfectly? Isn't that perfectly like everyone will think it applies to the other side? Right. Do you think he's being strategically ambiguous? Yeah. Or I, do you think that I? I think there's space for this. Or do you think John Bolton thinks that the uh, the instincts towards uh, catering towards authoritarians, especially the Russians, uh, that Donald Trump displays, uh, is in fact the problem he's talking about? I think he thinks those things. I don't know that he's going to be willing to say any of those things in any more specificity yeah. publicly. So that's where I'm going with this. Is uh, I, I'm willing. I, in fact, I'm. I think there's at least a little bit of of good faith. A statement there about, look, the president's priorities on national security seem to be Putin's priorities, and this is just wrong, and we have larger forces. Now, he may say, like, the president's evil advisors are putting poison in his ear, but whatever it is, there's space here for this being interpreted as Bolton coming out against the administration. But if you actually mean that, Ambassador, then put up, then put your words where your tweets are, start talking, start testifying, start explaining what it is that you've seen and heard and said and done that that pertains to this instead of raising money around it. Yep. All right. That's all I had to say about that. Um, All right. So, but meanwhile, in things that are likely to be resolved faster, um, we also had big news from SCOTUS yesterday in subpoena land. Um, As predicted by a certain co-host of this podcast, actually, I think we both predicted it. We both predicted it, yeah. Um, So so I I was strategically ambiguous. Yeah, you were. You were right and right. (laughs) Um, So the Supreme Court, uh, over no recorded dissents, um, granted the president's application to stay um, the D.C. 
Circuit's decision and the D.C. District Court's decision upholding the House Oversight Committee's subpoena to Mazars for some of his financial records. But the decision, the order also said that the president, to benefit from the stay, has to file a cert petition by next Thursday. Um, and, Hot on the money. Well, and the, and the reason why that's a big deal is because under the court's own rules, um, Trump would otherwise have had 90 days from when the D.C. Circuit yeah. denied rehearing on Bonk, which would have taken us into February before his petition was due and would have made it impossible for the court to resolve it one way or the other this term. Yeah. So they are not suckers. They know what's going on here. They're going to they're gonna take this case. They're going to freeze in place as we predicted. And I think we both would say, as is the right thing to do because the irreparability if it went the other way on this day, because the information would get out there and that'd be the end of the matter. Um, I don't think this tells us which way they're coming out, but it's not a great sign for the administration either that it's going to happen fast, because that in itself defeats the non-merits litigation strategy, which is to kick this all past the uh, kick this all past the election, because the the whole ball game, assuming that there's some serious issues with what's in those returns and those those accounting documents. Which at this point, I mean, if there, got, if, if there isn't. How could there not be? It's the greatest rope-a-dope ever. Oh, my God. If, it would be not. an extraordinary rope-a-dope if they dropped it. It's like, eh, this is kind of non-story. Um, I don't think that's going to be the deal. And it looks increasingly likely that it, they're either going to drop or not drop sometime in the summer well before the election. So. so there's still, I mean, there's one more possibility. So the other possibility is that they actually get all the cert papers in, which they'll probably get by the end of December and conference in early January. And upon reading the cert papers, you're like, you know what? There's nothing here, right? So I, I actually, I would not rule out the possibility. All right, that they could cert deny on this for that sure. They could deny cert in January. Well, that um, spares them a lot of uh, political heat. That's the thing. Um, and then there's say, also, hey, Chief Justice, you could save up a lot of political capital for the court if you just deny cert. Just saying. Um, although it only takes four to grant cert, right? So the stay would have been the right. The like the problem is that it's out of the chief's hands. Like he would need one of his colleagues to the right. Um, now, Chief and Kavanaugh. Oh, absolutely. Maybe. All right. Um, and then there's also the briefing is now complete in the Vance case, the New York subpoena case, which will at least be first considered by the justices at their December 13th conference. So subpoenas. It's happening. Yeah. So there's going to come a pretty dramatic oral argument sometime in March the or April. And then a, and, the, and then also a June ruling, and the, there'll also be there there'll also be the subpoena argument. Sorry, that was a Briggs joke. Uh, <laughs> you lost me. Right, <laughs> I have an oral argument in March. Oh, I'm with you now. That's right. You're back in court. You're there so often these days. I can oh yeah, hardly so often. Track. Yeah, you're there more than me. Well, yeah, it's good for any notional client I might have. I, I'm not sure. I, you know, I don't, I don't know who comes out better in this exchange. Um, <laughs> so all that's to say, like you know, I think. We probably won't have any more news by this time next week, but I think that there's going to be some meaningful movement on subpoena gate by probably mid-January. Man, okay. Do you think I should modify my spring con law syllabus to build in a bunch of subpoena and privilege stuff? So I added, you know, we teach out of the same case book, and the only sort of big Trumpy change I made to my syllabus compared to past years. You, you painted it gold? Um, okay. The only I said the only <laughs> significant Trumpy change. Um, so I laminated it. I, I I used the what's the someone someone used the font. Did you get notes. Did you get Did you get any political national committees to uh, buy eighty five thousand copies? I really should have. Yeah. All right, go on. I'm I'm being catty. No. So the only the only like big change. I mean, there are a couple of places where I tweaked the reading a little bit, where I added like maybe a short handout. Yeah. The only actual big change I added a whole day on interbranch oversight disputes. 
um, in the middle of our separation of powers unit because you know I hadn't done that. I I had done that two years ago out of a different book, and I had switched back to this book, which doesn't really have great materials on that. But I thought just like it's such a rich topic, yeah. and it's so well sort of joined by the current controversy. Yeah. So I had the students for that day. I had them read excerpts from Judge Tatel's majority opinion and Judge Rao's dissent in the D.C. Circuit Mazar's case. Um, and I think it actually went pretty well. Um, you know, I, I had to think about whether if I had to do it again, I, you know, because that was already a lot of reading. And yeah. so, I, you know, maybe I would excerpt it further or provide like more like secondary commentary. Yeah, it's a dilemma just to kind of go meta on the teaching for you and I and for everyone else who's listening who's a professor. If you're a student, you know, have some sympathy for your professors. We're all trying to navigate an environment where feelings are so supercharged, emotions run hot. And, uh, and we still have an obligation stuff. to actually teach, you know, con law. Right. Well, like, you know, it's, it's that balance of trying to find a way to, to touch on these issues that rip from the headlines that really matter in a way that people are going to be in an environment where they're really going to learn from it and not, not get hacked off. That We need to be able to do that. And I think we do a decent job of and, it. And, and I think in law school especially, there's such a big difference between 1Ls and upper-class students. Because upper-class students, we can just offer electives. So like our colleague, Larry Sager, has an elective this semester. It's basically just like Trump. Right. It's just right? Like the, and then there's this issue. And then there's that right. issue. Um, right. And, you know, it's a smaller class. Students choose that class. It's not part of the core right. curriculum. You come in there expecting to, to engage in the right. hot-button issues versus, of the moment. Versus like the first year where not only are we telling them what classes to take, but we're actually telling them who their professors are, where the, where the, the course material the stuff that's tested on the multi-state bar exam, right? Like, I feel like there's a different pedagogical obligation in those classes. To me, the key thing is when you're teaching common law, yes, we, we don't want to hide the ball on currently hot issues, but we're teaching them for the career, that's right? right. We're, we're, we may never get another chance. They may never, never get another chance to do a deep dive and understand um, the history, the methodological disputes, where the where the pros and cons are for each of the various methods people get attached to, um, what the classic issues are, including ones that are not hot today, but five years from now, 10 years from now, just like these current Trump issues were sort of not on the front burner. Uh, who knows what tomorrow holds? Uh, let's pivot now, I think, to frivolity. We're halfway there already. Yeah, I guess. Okay. Um, all right. Tune out if you don't want to talk about The Mandalorian, if you, especially if you don't want to hear spoilers. We're, we're going to talk about episode number three, the third. Or, or I just want to say a quick word before we do that. Spoiler yeah. alert. Can I stop? Lamar Jackson. <laughs> Spo- that- Wait, spoiler alert. He's good. That boy, good. <laughs> nice coming to America. Uh, Lamar Jackson is really having a coming out party this season. Uh, Going to be the MVP? Uh, running away. Yeah. Literally. Right. Literally, <laughs> figuratively. Um, I mean, so I, I, I'm not a big fan of advanced stats in football. Like okay. in, in baseball, yes. Cause in baseball, stat, it's such a stat-driven game where yeah. football's not. Um, the three highest... So, you know, the ESPN has a stat called QBR, quarterback rating, uh-huh. right? If you factor out people who threw like one pass, like Julian Edelman on a trick play, yeah, 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 right? Of course. The three highest single game scores in the history of this statistic, and they've gone back and applied it like for, I think, the whole Super Bowl era Lamar Jackson, Lamar Jackson, and Lamar Jackson. Ooh. Um, tell me this about QBR, because I don't understand this part. I have no idea like what the inputs are. Yeah. Uh, does it, I, I'm sure completion percentage is real high. It is high, but it's not. So completion percentage is high. It's not as high as in the pass efficiency rating, the one that goes to 158.3. Well, here, here's what I want to know. Uh, is there an advantage for quarterbacks 
who are not sort of like long range bombers like Pat Mahomes, right. but instead are getting you know I, I was nineteen. I'm not saying Lamar Jackson's is, yeah. but if you if you get nineteen out of twenty three because you're hitting seven yard ends and you're doing but they're your, running thirty yards after the catch. Right, exactly. Um, I think that still gets an advantage. I think that what really helps Lamar Jackson is that QBR, unlike I think passer efficiency rating, also takes into account offensive production through other means. Right, exactly. And he's not just a passer, obviously. I mean, he's probably he's, the, one of the best running backs in the league. I mean, he is going to not just break Michael Vick's unbreakable record for rushing yards by yeah. a quarterback in the season. He's going to shatter it. Yeah, I know. If he was just a tailback, he'd still be killing it. But meanwhile, all the all the teams. I'm looking at you, New York football giants, who passed over Lamar Jackson because they thought he was a wide receiver. Well, are you feeling regret on the Saquon Barkley deal? Like, he's having no. a hard time because they can key on him no, and I mean, stack I, the box I, on Saquon him. Saquon probably was the right pick at number two, but man, I mean, ugh. Yeah. Well, I hear is a rumor afoot that you might get Jason Garrett at some point because they're talking about the worm is really oh, turning. Gosh. Jerry Jones is almost ready to pull the plug on Jason Garrett after our embarrassment against New England. And uh, at least one report has it that uh, Jason Garrett, for his part, would really like to be considered for New York as his next gig. To which I say to you, sorry, man. No. Um, anyway, all right. So I'm done with my football. So, but, oh, but just, I mean, like, you know, the Ravens, I mean, I, it's not clear to me right now. They're playing the 49ers next week. And I think that's going to be a real test for that, both. That'll be a real test for both teams. It is not clear to me, with all respect to the 45,000 year old geezer in New England. <laughs> It is not clear to me that there's any team in either conference that can hang with those two teams. So, uh, with you mean San Francisco or like, New England? I don't think there's a team in the NFC, like given what the 49ers did to the Packers the other night, I don't think there's yeah. a team in the NFC that can hang with the 49ers. We'll see about the Seahawks. I don't think there's a team in the AFC that can hang with the Ravens who have already beaten the Patriots. So, I think that as the weather worsens, yeah. I think that the pathway for the Patriots is all about home field advantage. If, the, if it goes through Foxborough and you get to an AFC championship game where right. it's just horrific weather, then all bets are off and the Patriots could do it again. Otherwise, if they end up going through Baltimore, so that's and the thing is, and, and, think, and so, so the, the Ravens, Ravens are one game behind the Patriots and they own the tiebreaker. Right. So a lot these te- both teams are going to have to play through. Um, I think you mentioned the Seahawks. I do think the Seahawks are, are getting missed because people are obsessing over, for good reason, over yeah. the 49ers story. Yeah. Oh, I think they're right there. I mean, So they play again, I think, in two or three weeks. Yeah, that's uh, going to be a barn burner. The 49ers next three games are like Baltimore, somebody else really good, and the Seahawks, yeah. right, having just played Green Bay. So yeah. we're so going to we'll know we'll if see. the 49ers are legit. Yeah. All right, cool. Uh, let's Speaking talk- of things that we're going to know if they're legit pretty soon. Mandalorian, which I think I continue to like more than you do. I, you know, so we're talking about episode three now, right? Okay. Um, I, I just, so I guess I, I had this feel, episode three started and I knew how it was going to end. It was just like, all right, what's going to well, sure. happen in the next 35 right, minutes no. to get us to the ending? The baby Yoda, Yoda, I know he's not a, I know he's not Yoda, but. Yoda Jr.? Yoda. 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 I like that. Yoda. Yoda. Anyways, the baby. Okay, first of all, the puppeteering on that. Not the baba. Not the baba. Was that? The old, terrible ABC show, Dinosaurs. <laughs> you, okay, you, you got me on that one. Finally, you got me on one. Not the mama. Um, I, I think he's he's wonderful. I don't know if anybody's having a bad reaction to Baby Yoda. I love it. I Is cannot it, get enough. If Who's having a... Who could possibly be having a bad reaction to Monsters, Baby Yoda? just terrible people. Um, so, Baby Yoda continues to be great. Um, you, know, you know who I have to ask if he's having a bad reaction to Baby Yoda? So, you know, my brother... No, my sister-in-law's husband, Matt Myra, 
is like big sci-fi guy. Right, right. right? He has a Star Trek show. Um, he has the Star Trek The Next Conversation podcast. I mean, Matt is actually a successful podcaster, unlike, right. unlike say, you and I. Yeah, but we, we toil in a corner of obscurity. Um, and indeed, actually, so is Dory, uh, my sister-in-law, uh, Forever 35. Her her co-hosted podcast is like, you know. Let's Orders just, of magnitude more. Popular. Although, I gotta say, you know, we got, I don't, if you're listening, if you wonder, like, how many of you are there? Well, the download count, it tends to come in after it settles after a few weeks, around 9,000 these days. Listen. That's I, not bad. I'm, 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 I'm floored by that. Most uh, of them probably unlistened to, but they're just auto downloading. You know, we appreciate that you guys keep updating your, download, right. your downloads. Um, but so, so I will see Matt tomorrow because uh, Thanksgiving is at, is, is at Dorian Matt's. And I will ask him, you know, what is the official, like, serious L.A. sci-fi community's view on Baby Yoda? Oh, right. Yeah, I'm predicting like back. a cautious. I'm predicting a cautious. Like, yeah, that's pretty well done. Um, what this, about this? Will be our thing. Hopefully, as opposed to the other potential topics of Thanksgiving table conversation, hopefully the Mandalorian can be our that can our, be a comedy our, our topic. Let's let's hit. So we basically at this point really only have three engaged uh, characters on the show. You got Carl Weathers' character, who I guess will mm-hmm. be the antagonist. Uh, the sort of the first tier antagonist. He's the guild manager who's going to lead the hunt for Mando and Baby uh, Yodette. And he's okay. I mean, he didn't have a lot to work with here. It's Carl Weathers, so he's kind of awesome just in general. Um, what did you think? And then, of course, there's Mando himself. And, you know, the, the, hat, the helmet has not come off. We're told the helmet can't come off. You think we're ever going to see the helmet come off? Maybe as like a dramatic reveal at the end of the yeah. first season. Okay, let me ask you a series of questions about things you might have liked or not liked about okay. it. Did you like getting a little more uh, action with the other Mandalorians, yes. the other tribe members, yes. inc- okay. including Big Bubba? So my favorite part of the episode was the sort of still not entirely decipherable like Mandalorian code. Right. And you get a little insight into their tribe. And, and their sort of, and their hierarchy and their ethos. That is the way. So, so that was you know I don't understand it, but I like I like where that's going, okay. and I like and then the cool visual at the end where the guy and the jetpack looks like, yeah, you know. it was a little it was a little too like uh, yeah. you know um, it felt almost like a, like an Air Force commercial from the eighties or something. True, but, and 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 it also I I winced at the the cornball and got to get me one of those you know, jetpacks. Yeah, uh, come on. But what what did you think of the first the. He's trying to walk out of town. He's a bounty hunter. He knows he should know damn well that everybody, because apparently he's living in a town of bounty hunters where like no one else is there but bounty hunters, guild members. So of course they all come after him. He didn't really seem like he's got that great a plan to get out of there, and in fact would not have gotten out of there except for the arrival of all his cousins, right? The other Mandalorians. Who, by the way, I'm, I think these people are not related to each other at all. I think they're all orphans. I think they're all. Isn't there some reference at some point to like foundlings? Which explains, I think, why they're all cool with what he's done here and coming in his aid because he's doing some sort of rescue the orphan kind yes. of deal that's right. part of their code. There's, to some, right, there's that. some cultural like like you don't just do it in general, but once one of them commits to like take someone in, we all got your back. We got your back. So does that mean by the end of the show we can get a little baby Yodette set of Mandalorian armor for him? That would be no. that would be fly. With the ears sticking Although out he's a Jedi, side. he doesn't need it. I know he doesn't need it, but man, it's the way you got to yeah. put the helmet on, never totally. take it off. Um, what do you think of like the whole shootout deal and, nah. and, and like the, in the rescue, you know, the arrival of all the other Mandalorians to help I mean, out. you knew, you knew, right. You knew that once he's like totally cornered, right. Yeah, somebody you, was showing up. Something, like the, where's the millennium Falcon, right. To show up and blast, right. you know, blast the TIE fighters out of the sky. Right. 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 right? I just, it, I thought that other than the, all the, other than the intra Mandalorian stuff. It was all predictable. It was and so predictable and formulaic. Yeah. So, so I'm still meh officially. 
My, okay. my, my meh meter is still stuck at meh. Uh, how about some of just like the... Ooh, that's uh, a good episode. My meh meter is stuck, stuck at meh. My, my meh. <laughs> I can hardly even say that. Um, his, his rifle continues to be pretty badass. Um, yeah. The, the impact on that is, is pretty sweet. It looks like uh, kind of it's reminiscent of the War of the Worlds movie with Tom Cruise when the alien lasers would hit people and basically turn them into you know flakes of dust. Yep. Kind of the same deal. I guess there's not much more to say because three episodes in, not a ton happening here. So now the question is like, all right, so he's going to be kicked out of the guild, right? Because yeah. he's he's violated the rules of the guild, right? Yeah, right. So the bounty hunters of the universe keep coming after him. So what's the escape plan? What do you mean? Like, where's it going with Baby Yoda? That's like Logan's Run. You just got to get out. I don't know. <laughs> you just got to get out of there. So you're going to try the Kessel so, Run. So do you think? Yeah, I think that uh, he'll end up finding some sort of proto good guys that end up becoming seeds of. You know what becomes the resistance in the in the latest trilogy. It just as the client oh. is also proto order uh, first order. Does stuff. he go to Endor? Yeah, he could go to Endor and hide there, I guess. Well, where? I mean, right, cause remember in in Return of the Jedi, right? The rebels the rebels don't have a base, right? Their base is the fleet. Right, there's no, yeah. it, there, there's no, unlike in, unlike in episode four, right? There's no. Well, there's, shouldn't he be able to go to like the, the authorities in Coruscant at this point? Because it's like everything's the 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 New Republic, right? I guess that's right, right? And 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 in the 1997 revised version of, of Return of the Jedi, right, the end of the movie is you see the cell, the parties on Coruscant. There's all kinds of parties going down, so if he can just get himself there before Coruscant, if we if that really is Coruscant, does he have like a destroyed sh- does by he the have a straw? If the helmet can't come off, is he have like a little thing where he can get a straw in there, yeah, kind of drink smoothies and whatnot? How does he sleep? Oh, it's very comfy inside that helmet. It's uh, temperature controlled, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and when it, when it's annoyingly loud, he just turns up the you know the white noise. Okay, I, I, th- I think we. I, I have so many questions. <laughs> All right, I guess that's it for the Mandalorian. Do better, Mandalorian. Give us more to work with. I just, I, I just, I'm waiting for like like it's like okay, we're three episodes in, and I still have no idea what the hell this show is about. Yeah, like. I know nothing other than, like, here's a bounty hunter. He was supposed to turn this guy in, you know, the baby in. Had cold feet, second thoughts. That's three episodes of plot. Yeah. All right. Well, it's got got to culminate in something. Some good has to be done. It's a Star Wars deal. So they got to set up, A, the forthcoming First Order. B, spinoff movies and merchandise about the Mandalorian. We know there's a season two, so he can't die. Or at least if he does die, somebody's going to put on the armor for him. And probably it won't be Baby Yodette. I, I I have questions. And I have no answers, so I guess that's our cue. All right. Uh, listen, have a happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Stay safe out there. He is at Bobby Chesney. I'm at Steve underscore Vladek. We are at NSL Podcast. We will be back in December. What? Because that's next week. Yep. I can't believe that. Um, until then, you know, enjoy your time, hopefully off, and stay safe out there. Adios. Meh. <laughs>